Today's message is one that I'm so excited to share today. Um, and it was Labor Day, and I was like, man, this message is too good to share on Labor Day because everybody goes on vacation on Labor Day. Now, Mission Church, we go to church, am I right? Come on now. Come on. So, so we're going to do church today on Labor Day. Uh, this is how we roll on our three-day weekends. Uh, it says this in Deuteronomy 32 before I pray. I want to read it to you. It's a phenomenal verse from Moses. And it's Moses' uh, basically last words. Uh, he pens these at the end of his 40 years um, uh, journeying with uh, Israel and the Lord. This is a man who knew God face-to-face, knew the character of God, knew the heart of God, saw the rhythms of God. And so he writes this basically uh, poem, love song about who God is and who he is to, our, uh, to us. And so he's writing to us today. It's an amazing picture. And this is a guy, again, who had an idea of who God was, lived his whole life, and then actually understood a lot, of, a lot more than we do. And so it's going to be a blessing to us. And, and here's what I mean by that. Let's just read it. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12 says this. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as an apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest. That's who the Lord is. He's like an eagle that stirs up his nest. That's going to make sense in just a second. And hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them, and carries them aloft. The Lord alone uh, led them. Stop. Now Moses, if we ever hear about Moses, you know the story of Moses. He comes to the Red Sea. God blows on the Red Sea. It's the Ruah. It's the, the Spirit of God. It actually says from the nostril. It's an amazing thing. I don't know what the Lord was doing, but he threw from his nostril. He split the Red Sea, okay? That's another sermon for another day, but our God has a sense of humor, okay? Um, he's like, freedom. Um, so anyway, so he, he, he literally blows um, uh, on the wind. The wind comes. It's the Ruah. It's the Spirit of God. Splits the Red Sea. Moses comes through it. And it's an amazing picture because Moses knows that God is a deliverer. He's a deliverer. But then for the next 40 years, here's what Moses finds out and he's telling us today. God is a deliverer, but he's also a developer. God wants to develop your life. Some of you right now are saying, God, deliver me from my boss. Deliver me from this friend or this circumstance. And God's saying, I can't deliver you because I'm trying to develop you. If I deliver you too soon, you will not learn what I want you to learn. You will not become what I want you to become. God is in the developing business. Let's pray. Father, this morning, may we embrace the process of you developing us. Oh, may we embrace the process of you uh, taking away things that we're not supposed to carry in our hearts and our minds. Lord, the, the, the junk that this world tries to throw on us. Lord, you're the one that wants to uh, remove the, the dirty robe and put a robe of uh, white on us and make us not only feel clean on the outside, but clean us from the inside out. Father, we need you. We thank you in the developing business. And everybody said? Now let's look at this verse again, Moses says. He said that he, uh, he stirs us up like eagle's nests, okay? Here's what this means. Uh, I love studying it. It caught my eyes. Like, what does that even mean? A mama eagle or papa eagle. I'm not sure who raises the eagles. I, I, I'm not an eagle. I'm a human. Uh, but eagles come, and they have little baby uh, eaglets. I'm sure that's their name, okay? Um, I'm not sure, but let's just call them eaglets, okay? So you have little baby eaglets. Everything else I know that is a fact. Everything else I'm not sure. So they have little eaglets. For the first season, the uh, uh, mama eagle comes in and drops off food, uh, all these feathers, creates this perfectly warm little nest, and the baby eaglets are living the life. You know, they're like, oh, it's 11 a.m., they just got done watching college football, I mean, just one of those days, and then food comes, they eat it, and then they just hang out. But here's what happens. The mom starts to stir the nest, and here's what that means. That same comfort that the eagle loved is now actually an enemy of progress of developing the eagle to be what it's called to be. So the mama eagle comes in, and takes the nest and starts taking out the soft feathers from the nest and making it uncomfortable. So the baby eagle is like, oh my gosh, I don't like this anymore. i got to move out of here. Not only that, but the mom eagle stops bringing as much food to make the baby eagle hungry. 
And what you may observe as mean and cruel from the mother uh, eagle, it's actually a compassionate love. The mom is trying to give the eagle the gift of flight, the gift of life. And the, ba- uh, the mom eagle knows if I keep feeding it, if I keep it warm, if I keep it comfortable, and I allow it to stay comfortable in the nest, it will never fly, it will never soar, it will never thrive. And so eventually, this baby eagle, out of frustration and depression, and you can even say desperation, out of desperation and frustration, jumps off of the cliff. Yo, life has to be better than this pokey nest with no food. Come on now. Some people feel like your life is like that right now. You know what I'm talking about? Life has got to be better than what's going on right now. And so the, the eagle jumps off the cliff and literally, now here's what's so nice about the, the mom eagle. It doesn't learn to fly the first time. The mom eagle swoops up. And grabs the baby eagle. And he's like, oh, thanks, mom. You know, and then the mom eagle brings the eagle back and puts it back in that same nest. The eagle again is frustrated. And then jumps off again to fly. And again, ah, 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 nothing. Mom eagle <laughs> catches the eagle. I'm going to go about seven times, so buckle up, okay? I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll just go three, okay? This, this is a smart eagle. It learns in three times, okay? We'll go three, all right? Third time. Third time. It's in the nest. It's hungry. It's uncomfortable. Tells his homies, yo, today's the day I'm going for it. <laughs> ah! Oh, snap, crackle, pop. Okay. I'm an eagle. Okay, thank you very much, you know. And now it, the baby eagle is flying and soaring and becoming everything it's called to be. And the Lord uses Moses to pen this picture for everybody in the house today. That, man, uncomfortable ability is not a bad thing. But it is something God wants to use to develop you. Now, Moses penned this character of God, and we're going to learn from a man named Joseph who lived actually through this process. In Joseph's story, it may not be the same as yours, but you maybe can relate through the four, I believe, phases of how God stirred the nest of Joseph's life. Joseph is a man who grew up with a lot of brothers. He was daddy's favorite. Dad gave him a robe. He had a dream. He woke up with this dream, and the first time he had the dream, because he had no character for the dream, he dreamt it in a way where he's like, oh my gosh, I had a dream. Everybody bowed down and worshiped me. You're welcome. And not only was he so um, uh, young and immature, he was telling people this also. Sometimes when you have a dream, keep it to yourself. Okay? Just let me, let me just let you know. Just keep, ponder these things. Pray these things with the Lord, right? So he has this dream, tells everybody his brothers get jealous, and his brothers decide, you know what? You have a dream like that? All right, we're going to kill you. Okay, now pause real quick. I lived in a dysfunctional family, but that was never a worry we had in our family, okay? Um, our siblings were just going to throw something at you or tease you, but the brothers were going to kill him, but he had one really nice brother. Joseph did. And the nice brother said, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. What a great brother, yes? Okay? So then they end up selling him into slavery. Joseph goes into slavery. After he goes into slavery, he goes to this guy named Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the CEO of everything that he does. He's the chief executioner for Pharaoh. So uh, Joseph does such a great job, he makes Joseph the CFO and the COO, the chief operating officer, basically. He's the number two in Potiphar's house. He basically gets to do anything and everything. He leads, he eats, and he is now the number two of that house. But then Potiphar's wife comes on the scene, and she's like, oh, my goodness, I'm a seeing and I'm a liking. You know what I'm saying? I know. And so this, and it says Joseph was a good-looking chap, okay? Uh, so, so Joseph, uh, she sees him, and she's trying to woo him over and over again. Joseph, hello, it's me, you know? Um, and Joseph's like, not today, devil, not today, okay? Um, Job 31, I made a cover of my eyes not to look at another maiden, okay? And so uh, he walks away, but then there comes this one time where she has him cornered, and she basically um, 
pounces on him. I don't know what that looks like, um, but that's where the term cougar comes from, just so you know. And so um, the, she pounces on him. Uh, oh, did I say that in church? I did. I did. Okay. So she pounced on him, grabs his robe. He's like, ah, cooties, get away from me. And he runs away from her uh, because he has what I would call character. You need that for your dream, by the way. He runs away from her. Now she lies about him. She betrays him. Again, have you ever done the right thing and still paid the price as if you did something wrong? He did everything right, but still didn't feel the reward of doing everything right. Well, that's what happened to Joseph. He gets thrown in prison. Now he's in prison. Okay, I'm going to tell the whole story, and then we're going to go back and look at four moments, just so you know what the sermon's going to be like. Goes to prison. And again, Joseph is just, again, a man who stewards whatever's in front of him. He elevates to the CEO of the, of the prison. He's the chief operating officer uh, in prison also. Uh, and he's down there for a while. And finally, uh, some guys are having a dream. It's the, uh, the cupbearer and the baker. And he's just hanging out, and they're like, oh, my gosh, we had terrible dreams. And, and he's like, man, like, you know, they're trying to interpret. He's like, man, man doesn't interpret dreams. God interprets dreams. Let me hear your dream. I'm like, okay, uh, here's a dream. And to the baker, he goes, hey, man, so actually the cupbearer says first, the cupbearer goes, hey, in three, your dream means this. In three days, you're going to be elevated back to your position. Cupbearer's like, I always know I like Joseph. That's awesome, you know. And so that actually happens for cupbearer, uh, the cupbearer. The baker's like, hey, so here's my dream. And Joseph's like, okay, in three days, you're going to get impaled and killed. <laughs> you're welcome. Sleep well. Peace out, okay? So the baker dies. That's literally uh, that part of the thing. When they leave, Joseph says, just remember me. Just remember me. Remember me. Well, what happens is baker dies, cupbearer forgets him. And how many of us forget the one great thing somebody does? For we always, it's amazing to me how many things we forget of what people have done for us and even what Jesus has done for us. We're so quick to forget the kindness of God, the, the patience of God, the blessing of God. We're on to the next thing. We forget the blesser, and we fall in love with something else. And so now he's in prison, and finally the cupbearer um, uh, finds out Pharaoh has a dream, and he remembers. There's this guy named Joseph. He interprets dreams. They bring Joseph up. Joseph interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. Uh, it's about a famine. Pharaoh uh, uh, puts uh, uh, Joseph again as the COO, chief operating officer of all of Egypt, the number two guy, the CFO. He's about to um, uh, steward this thing where they can take care of even the worst famine to not only save a pagan nation of Egypt, but the whole purpose was to save a small nation, Israel. Come on now. So uh, Joseph uh, stewards that. His brothers come back, and they see him, and he cries, and they're afraid that he's going to have revenge, but he simply says in Genesis 50, uh, who am I? I'm not God to judge. I, I love you. God meant it for good, what you meant for evil. And it's this amazing story. Stop. Let's go back to the beginning. There's four things that Joseph went through in this. First one, he went through rejection. Second one, he went through temptation. Third one, he went through isolation. And the fourth one, he went through elevation. He got elevated to his dream. And the thing that we're going to learn today is that a dream to really be powerful for the kingdom is it must be developed. A dream must be developed. And again, God defines you, but you'll see throughout your life that people God will use to refine you. I want, I want you to catch this verse real quick. I want to read it to you again. The first thing we're going to learn from Joseph is if you... I mean, let me say this before I go on this. I'm getting excited. I'm pumped about this message. Come on now. Come on. Everybody in this room, there is a dream for your life, and God has it for you. If you don't have a dream right now, man, start praying and asking God, God, what's, what's your dream for my life? What do you have for me, God? Because right now we have a lot of people who have what I call instant dreams. They look at Instagram and culture, and they let culture shape their dream. You can have a dream from this world that is not of God because you let culture birth a dream in you, or you can hang out with the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and have him birth a dream in you that is the one that could change the world and change your life. It is important to have a dream for your life. So Joseph has a dream. 
And it's fascinating to me that right after he has this dream, the first thing the enemy tries to do to Joseph is kill Joseph and kill that dream. Because God, uh, God knows that he, the way he works is he births a dream in us, and if that dream comes to fruition, he knows that the gates of hell cannot stand against us. He declares that over your life. But the enemy also knows scripture where if that dream comes to fruition, that you will be the one that defeats him. And so your dreams will be under attack. I cannot lie to you about that. That is a part of it, that, that there will be something where you have to pray and say, Lord, protect my house, protect my mind, protect my heart. When people hurt you, you have to forgive. That's the way that you have victory in your life. So Joseph has this moment. It's in Genesis 50, uh, verse 19. He says this. It's the moment he meets his brothers, and his brothers are afraid. Yo, we, we're going to kill this guy. We sold him slavery. How is he going to react? This is Joseph after his dream has been developed. We're going to start from the end and go back to the beginning. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Stop. I wrote, God's people don't define you, but they will refine you. There's something about our life, and you have to decide this. Joseph, I don't know when it happened, but Joseph was a young boy, sold into slavery. I guarantee you when he was walking to Potiphar's house that he was thinking, oh my gosh, why would my family do this to me? I'm just a boy, I'm a brother. I, what kind of family sells their brother into slavery? I bet you he was upset, angry, frustrated, um, confused, all of the above. And then after he gets betrayed by Potiphar's wife, he's got to be like, oh my gosh, all I did was serve well, and I was doing such a good job, and then I get sent to prison. And the same thing, there had to be a moment in Joseph's life where he said, man, people's betrayals will not define my life. I will not allow that to be what directs my steps or define my dream. They will not stop my dream. My dream is what, is what it is. I'm going to steward my life. I remember when I moved to L.A., and I, I, it was kind of my Joseph season, if I put it that way. I moved to a county of 10 million people. 10 million people. I work at a new church. I leave the comfort of Washington. Now, here's the thing that you need to know about uh, uh, the way the Lord works is when Peter's uh, fishing, he comes on the scene. He calls his disciples. Hey, come follow me. They drop their nets. They leave their family. They left comfort to their calling. For you to actually go to your dream, you're going to have to leave comfort behind to go to your calling. Now, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, don't let comfort direct your steps. Let your calling direct your steps. Calling is not a vocation. It is who you are. You're called to love people. You're called to change the world. You're called son and daughter. That should define the way you operate in life. So I moved down to L.A., had good experience at church to an extent, loved my first church, started working at church, and I had a dream to change the world. I feel like the Lord showed me when I was uh, 16 years old, 20 years ago, I was in the second row of Cal Forest Square. I was sitting there. This is my dream. Not your dream. Everybody's dream is different. It's in pre-service prayer. And I'm sitting there, and I feel like the Lord tells me, you're going to pastor a church one day, and you're going to pastor a church that impacts the world. No idea what that looks like. I'm 16 years old, and I can't tell anybody that dream because I'll sound like a weirdo. So I just, okay, Lord, you got it. I actually went back uh, this last year, 20 years later, sat in the same chair. Uh, Rachel took a picture of me. I actually put it on my Instagram if you want to see it. Go, <laughs> go on my Instagram. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm wearing a flannel. Okay, I'm wearing a flannel in a second. And I was like, um, 20 years, full circle. So that's my dream, and then I go into ministry, and my first youth group has six kids. Caleb is, I think, my seventh and eighth kid, by the way, Caleb Esborg. The guy was wearing People Versus. People Versus O.J. Simpson? No, it's, it's actually a brand. It's just People Versus. I thought it was actually the, a shirt from the uh, movie, the O.J. Simpson show, but it wasn't. Anyways, <laughs> another story for another day. I don't know fashion, okay? Uh, so I go to my first youth group, six kids to seven. Lord grows it to an extent, blesses it. It's a great first season. I go down to L.A., 
And I feel like the enemy took out all of his guns and barrels and tried to use people to destroy me. My pastor, my, my boss, the guy who's overseeing me, I would be walking out of the office and he would grab my arm and he would throw me against the wall, literally physically assault me, okay? I'm 25 years old now at this time. And he would throw me against the wall and he would start yelling at me about something. How dare you talk to, because uh, my senior pastor, like, you don't talk to the senior pastor, you talk to me, you never tell him, you never bother him, you only talk to me, you understand me? Okay, all right, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't know. He just asked me how my day was and I told him how my day was. I didn't, it, I, that's all that happened. He's like, I don't care how it happened, you don't do it again. I walk out of a church and I'm going, man, this is what church is, man. Church has failed and it's, it's terrible. So then I start praying. Oh, God, fire him in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I wasn't mature yet, okay? I didn't pray forgiveness. I was like, Lord, just get rid of him. Whatever way you want to call him home, whatever. I just, I don't care. <laughs> these are my prayers. I'm not saying they're refined. I'm just saying these are my prayers. A few months later, he got fired. You're welcome. So he got fired. He got fired. I now, afterwards, I pray to forgive him. I forgive him now. Okay? I, 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 blessing on his house, okay? Blessing on his life, okay? Um, hopefully, he's a better man now, okay? Uh, but I forgive him. No, no resentment. So that was my prayer. Then my, the new pastor comes on, and he brings me into his office, and he says, hey, man, I'm going to beat the BBB out of you this summer. I'm going to teach you what it means to be a disciple. Cusses me out. Tell me how he's going to disciple me. Yeah. <laughs> now, still, I'm a young man, but this, I don't find that in the Bible. I don't see that once. And I remember calling up one of my mentors. And I'm done. I'm done. You know, I, I, I'm going to go be a, a teacher. I love, I, I love sports. I'm going to coach basketball and be a teacher. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. My pastor said, hey, don't, don't let that man ruin your life. Don't give him that much power over your lifestyle. You're going to let one person destroy your dream? I was like, no, it's not one. It was two. <laughs> two people. Two people destroy it. You're going to let two people destroy your dreams, Tyler? Two people were mean to you in church, so you're going to give up on church and give up on your dream. And I came to a place in my life where I said, no longer will I give power to people to determine where my dreams will go. I will not allow them to destroy it. It says this, and I, and I came to this conclusion like Joseph. It says this in Romans. I'll prove it to you. This is how God loves to use that. Romans 8, 28. It says, uh, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love them and are called according to his purpose for them. And God, I feel like, told me the pain has a purpose. The pain has a purpose. I'm going to teach you how to forgive and love because right now you're praying that I'll kill somebody and take them home, Tyler, instead of forgive them. I can't give your dream to that kind of disciple. You can't be a senior pastor. You can't pastor people when you're praying dreams. Take them home, Lord. They were mean to me today. I'm trying to, to disciple you. Now, I, I wrote this down real quick. I want you to catch this real quick. I've got daddy wounds. I've got friend wounds. I've got sibling wounds. I've got church wounds. I've got a lot of wounds. But what I found out is that I've got a healer that's bigger than all my wounds. And so Joseph came to a conclusion, hey, I have wound after wound, but I have a dream that's bigger than that wound because that dream's from the one that's bigger than all my wounds. He's my healer. And so the brothers, they don't get it because they weren't refined like Joseph was. They weren't developed because a dream must be developed. One of the first things you have to understand is God wants to develop you, and pain is a part of the process. He refines by fire. So there are people in your life that just drive you crazy. Thank the Lord for them. And then pray that God would fire them. It's all good. It's all good. It worked for me. It worked for me. Same. First thing that Joseph went through in his developing is that he decided that people would not uh, define his life, but they would be used to refine his life. You have to do the same thing for you. I'm a different pastor. I'm a different friend. 
I'm a different sibling because of my life. Next one that Joseph went through is temptation. It's temptation. Uh, this is a quote from another pastor I love. And he said, a dream that can't be tested cannot be trusted. A, team, a dream that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Let's fast forward to Genesis 39. Joseph is the CFO. We, we talked about this. Potiphar, he's got this dream. And now this is what I call the character dream. Because what good is it for you to have a dream come to fruition in your life if you have no character to, uh, to steward it? Think, I, I mean, I'm a huge sports fan. I see this all the time in Sports Center. Uh, a basketball player who made $110 million is broke, gets $110 million, and doesn't have the character to steward $110 million. I see people all the time, young, I remember being a young adult pastor, and they would get married, and they had no character to steward a, a, a marriage, and they were just selfish, and they're all about themselves. Go back to my first three years in L.A. So I'm going through rejection at the same time. And if I could just be honest, there's three things when I was in my teens, my late teens, 16, 17, 18, I was praying, of, Lord, what do you have for my life? And the three were either I was going to be a pastor, a college basketball coach, or an actor. Okay, just going to be honest. Okay, those are my three. Everybody has a different three. Those are my three. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. And I felt like the Lord was very clear. Man, I want you to build my kingdom. I want you to be a pastor. Because all of us, if everybody in the room, everybody's a minister of the gospel. That, it, a, a, a vocation does not define me to be a pastor. It's, it's literally what I'm, I would do it for free. I would do it for us. It's, it's what God's built me to do. So I'm at the church in L.A. and I'm preaching and temptation comes my way. And it's interesting because all of us picture temptation as Potiphar's wife, but temptation can look like anything. It can look like money. It can look like opportunity. It could look like comfort. It could be a lot of things. It could look like settling. For me, it was one Sunday I got done preaching a message, and this acting coach and agent came up to me after I preached. Now, the acting coach was, this was when Jim Caviezel was really big. It was John Kirby. He was acting coach for Jim Caviezel in L.A., a lot of famous actors that he was acting coach for. Agent was there, had a bunch of actors in the TV world. So they get done, they come up to me like, Tyler. I was like, yeah, yeah, you've got it. I was like, I, I got what? <laughs> Straight up, tell me now. And they're like, like you, have, you have comedic timing. Uh, if you uh, came to my class for free, I'm going to get you an agent. We can get you in, in showbiz. You would be a phenomenal uh, person on TV shows. And I was like, I want to be an actor. <laughs> so then I kind of like, sit on it. The following week, um, I'm just doing an announcement. Somebody else comes up to me. And again, I'm in L.A. I'm in Burbank. Four of the five, four of the big six studios, Disney Studios there, uh, Warner Brothers is there, Paramount's right down the street in Hollywood, I mean, Nickelodeon Studios, every studio's in Burbank, a ton of art, except Sony Pictures, where my wife worked, and she had to commute an hour and a half, it's weird, I don't know why we didn't move, but anyways, okay. Um, next week, an agent comes to me, hey man, like, if you ever want to go for this, I mean, I, I, you got it, you, I mean, you're, you, you've got comedic timing, I mean, you, you can go, ha ha ha. I guess that's a gift. I, didn't, I think everybody did it, but there he's like, no, that's, that's a gift. I'm like, all right. Um, so then I get headshots, all right? I get my blue steel. I wore like a big, tall, like Bond jacket, and my, head, and my headshot was seriously like this. You shouldn't be laughing. You should be like, oh, it's beautiful. So I get my headshots done. This is my temptation. They all get delivered. They're the um, big ones. And then I have my resume uh, behind because you're supposed to shoot like, something about yourself with your headshot. And then you're going to give different agents. And I was going to pick my agent. And I'm sitting in my office at the church, and I look at it, and I felt this tug from the Lord. I'll put you on the planet for this. And it was one of those moments, and I felt like the Lord was saying, man, if you walk down this road, you're walking away from your dream. This is not your life. And I took those headshots. Terrible, terrible headshots. 
and I just threw them in the garbage. Some of you need to take a worldly dream that the world's been trying to offer you, and you need to throw it in the garbage. And you need to get the dream from the King of Kings that will change your life. Because here's what really Joseph's temptation to him Potiphar was. It wasn't just to sleep with a woman one time. It was simply this. And you're making money. You're the number two guy of this house. You can have all your comforts taken care of, and you can have a woman on the side. Not a bad life, Joseph. You were hurt by people. What else could your life be about? Might as well settle for this life, Joseph. But Joseph had a dream that drove him. You need to have a dream that drives you. Your dream will determine the bar for your life. If you don't have a dream not of this world, you will live of this world. But if you have a dream from heaven, you will dream like heaven will, and you'll live a different life. You'll live a heavenly life instead of a worldly life. Temptation will come your way, and you will walk away from it because you're not walking away from anything enticing. You are repenting. You're turning from the world, and you're accepting the invitation for a dream that's not of this world. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? You'll have to pass the test of temptation. Our culture has a ton of temptation right now to live a certain way, to chase after certain things. And really temptation, if I could put it this way, it's what you build your life on or what you build your life around. Matthew 7 says, count the cost. How are you going to build your life? Is it going to be built on sand or is it going to be built on Jesus? If you build your life on sand, there's going to be a terrible cost for your life. I don't know if you've ever been to um, San Fran lately, uh, the city, uh, but if you go to the city, there's this thing called the Millennium Tower right now. The Millennium Tower costs $500 million to build, okay? And uh, they, they made, though, about $150 million when they sold all the condos. Joe Montana owns one in there for about $650 million. Well, this Millennium Tower, they decided to build it on sand, okay? Good call, guys, okay? Uh, now, don't get me wrong. At first, I was like, who builds a building on sand in the city? It has tilted now 14 inches, okay? You can put a golf ball, and it will roll to the side. Huge lawsuit. They're losing a ton of money. They're nervous, actually, about people's safety now. This is not a good thing. So I researched it a little bit. It's on 60 Minutes, actually. It's crazy. So I started Googling it. Other buildings around them were doing it with sand. So they thought, well, if other buildings do it this way with sand, maybe we can do it with sand. And so they looked around on how people were doing it. So they built a, a $500 million building because if it worked for them, maybe it can work for me, but they haven't seen the long term. Maybe it's worked for 10 years. It's not going to work for 20. Culture will sell you to build your life on some type of sand. What is your sand? Is it money? Culture showed me that money works, and that's what my life should be built on. Go 10 years and see if your life still feels like it's supposed to, and 10 years of money becomes your God. Man, work. Oh, if I just keep on going up the ladder and work, and it'll satisfy my soul because promotions are so good, they make me feel so good about myself. See how uh, your life, if it's tilting the wrong way in 10 years because you decided to do like everybody else. Do not buy into that temptation. Build your life on the rock. Count the cost. I love what C.S. Lewis says. It's, it's such a phenomenal thing. He goes on to say, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. Come on now. Um, if you know what port is, that's alcohol, okay? Booze, okay? Um, I always knew booze would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't re recommend Christianity. Now, now what is C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying this, and this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Hey, just count the cost. Life is not going to be easy, no matter what. But one is going to have a great reward and a great return, and it's going to be a great journey on your life. If you choose to follow me, all that pain will have a purpose. All that mess, I can turn into a masterpiece. All that brokenness, I can restore. This way is my way. It's not going to be easy, but I'm telling you, it's the best way for your life. Build it on me, the rock. Or you can build your life on the world and see how your life turns out. Both are going to be hard. Only one has a great return, a great reward. Man, I want to follow Jesus. Third point that uh, Joseph had to go through, it was isolation. It was isolation. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to go through these last two real fast. 
So now Joseph is in the third phase of his dream being developed. He is imprisoned by himself. In Genesis 40, if you want to read it, and really isolation, another pastor said this, I love it, isolation is an invitation from God. It's like an incubator. It's not a bad thing. Isolate, when you have those seasons, I, I remember going to L.A. for my first three years. It's, it's fascinating. I, after I did this study, I started thinking, Lord, you did so much in those three years of my life. It was my breaking season of my life. So Joseph has this season in, in, the, in the prison where he's isolated, and I, I, so much time with the Lord, because when you don't have the busyness of this world, you can actually have some time for heaven. It's crazy. So my first three years, I go down to uh, Burbank, California, and I, uh, um, I'm an extrovert. I don't know if you knew that, but I, mean, I love people. I love hanging out with people. I like to party. Uh, my name's Tyler. I like to party. Christian party, but I like to party. Um, and I had nobody around me. Like my, one of my first friends was Shane. Shane, thanks, homie, for being my buddy. Um, and then a guy named TD, who are my friends. And I, I feel like it's pretty easy for me to make friends, but man, for some reason, in L.A., city of 10 million, I could not make friends. I was crying myself to sleep for the first six months. I was lonely. I was isolated. I was angry at God, saying, God, why did you bring me to L.A.? This is terrible. I just, I just want to go back. I actually called uh, my, uh, a church where I used to live and said, hey, I'll, I'll be your youth pastor. Just, I, I'm done. I want to come back up. I don't want to live here. I want to go back to the comforts of where everybody I know. I want to be able to go to my pastor every time I'm sad. I want to go uh, to my mentor every time I'm sad because I got in this rhythm that when I had a hard day, I'd go to a person instead of the Lord. That's just the rhythm I was in. And so I'm in L.A., and I'll never forget this. I'm, I, I'm having a hard day because one of my pastors, again, is doing something. And so I, uh, I remember trying to call my buddy Drew because he's the one that I would call and process with. But the problem is he can't answer every time. So I remember putting the phone down. What am I supposed to do? I had one of the hardest days, and my best friend's not answering. I, I'm not really talking to my mentor. Like, well, what am I supposed to do? My pastor that's supposed to be my pastor, he's cussing me out and physically assaulting me. I can't call him up to talk to him about him. Hey, can I talk to you about some guy? He grabbed me today and threw me. That was me. Oh, yeah, my bad, my bad. Could you pray for me? I hate I'm trying to. I'm praying for him to go home to the Lord. I'm trying to pray for him. So I had to literally just, I remember walking out of my apartment, it was on Verdugo in San Fernando, and I would just walk down the street crying. Late 20, I'm just, just keeping it real with you. And I just bawled my head off like, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't want this, God. This is terrible. I'm done. I want to quit. I want to quit. I want to quit. I'm done. I hate it. I feel lonely. Washington's where my community is. What are you doing, Lord? For about six months. God got me lonely so he could become my comforter. He isolated me so I could actually understand intimacy with the Lord. And isolation is not a bad thing. During that season, he showed me all these things in my life, my unforgiveness, my anger, all these different things, and I found out that he was Savior because I couldn't take care of it. That's when my wounds, I remember that was when I got on my forgiveness train with my dad. That's when God showed me the wounds in my life that I needed to give to him that he could heal. It's a three-year process of developing all these things in my life. And I thought it was going to destroy me. But it wasn't destroying me. God was developing me. And isolation is not a bad thing. It's an invitation from God to let him be the one that is the closest to you in the hardest season. I wrote this down. It's very simple. I, uh, I'll be honest. Planning the church almost destroyed Rachel and I. Oh my goodness. We would have a barbecue and we were stressed out just to make sure the barbecue was going to go well. 
you had moments where literally, like, can I tell them our story? Okay, cool. She can't say no, we're in church. Rachel, like, forgot one thing. I forgot one thing, and I couldn't find Rachel. I was like, where's Rachel? Where's Rachel? I walk into the office, and she's on the floor like this. <laughs> I just can't do it. I'm done. Like, literally laying on the floor. I had moments like that, too. I'd be laying in bed looking at the wall. I can't do it, God. I'm literally just crying, breaking down, because I was trying to do everything in my own strength. And God reminded me of the moments where I was like, man, I'm supposed to do this. You're just supposed to be faithful. Remember the isolation seasons, an invitation to allow me to be a part of it. Whenever things get really hard, don't retreat. Actually press into prayer. If I wouldn't have had my season in L.A., I wouldn't have been able to steward this. I would have quit. I never would have even done it. If I wouldn't have had the fire in L.A., I would have never been the pastor I am today. Because here's the last test. We have rejection, we have temptation, we have isolation, but the next one is elevation. Joseph gets promoted to have the power over anybody and every. He could say, that person, prison, done, kill him. That person, done. That person, hey, hey, make me a sandwich. You know how I like it with a little bit of mustard. Do it now. He could have done anything he wanted. He gets elevated and he serves. He became a servant leader, not a serve me leader. And the pastor I am today, and the the, uh, test I'm in right now at this moment, is we have six employees on our team. Am I going to be somebody who breaks them down and bullies them, or will I be a blessing? Because when you get elevated, you can be a blessing or a bully. You can become a serve me, serve me, or you can become a servant. And whatever elevation looks like, an elevation can look like, a promotion can look like marriage. And if you haven't gone through the process and the developing and you're not committed to it, you'll look at your spouse as somebody you're supposed to use to make you happy instead of somebody you're supposed to bless and serve. You look at it as a job, as a place that's supposed to promote you and make you happy instead of an opportunity to bring the ministry into the marketplace. You look at money as a God that's supposed to satisfy your soul instead of a tool to actually bring glory to his name to build the kingdom. If you do not go through the test with Jesus and develop it, your elevation will be terrible and everybody will be ruined by it. And I, I want to I pass this test. Well, I had to become a senior pastor so I could tell people what to do. And I became a senior pastor because I came to church when I was 16 years old. And my life sucked. Let me do it that way. I was somewhat depressed, at times suicidal, and my life was changed in the church. It was transformed forever. So when we birthed Mission Church, my prayer was that you would walk into this house, and maybe you hated church or was wounded by church, but this would be a different place where you'd be restored and your faith would be put back in Jesus, and you would have a dream from Jesus. That's the heart for Mission Church. You guys can bow your heads.